Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. Are we going to require the same level of evidence for a vaccine before it is approved? Could we potentially begin to use it at the same time as we're still studying it? And normally we would never do that, but COVID is making that not only possible, but needed. That's Christopher Austin. He's the director of the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, or NCATS, at the National Institutes of Health. His agency's mission is to speed up the process of discovering and creating new medicines, something that has never been more urgent. Dr. Austin spoke recently with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman Mike Milken. Chris, thank you for joining me. Mike, it's good to be with you. It was 25 years ago that we made the decision to put on the march. And we brought a half a million people to Washington to finally get the efforts coordinated to double the National Institutes of Health budget, triple the National Cancer Institutes budget. But a number of years later, we began to be concerned whether the country was going to maintain its commitment to medical research. So as we looked at the landscape, the first thing we did is we decided to put on an innovation retreat. Government agencies, policymakers, academic research centers, bioscience communities from around the world, philanthropists, and a lot of entrepreneurs. And we brought them all together to imagine a new organization that could accelerate medical science. As an outcome of that, work began on what is now called NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Science. It was established by Congress, a funding commitment of more than a half a billion a year for a decade, and it culminated with our efforts in putting on the celebration of science in 2012. And you have led NCATS from its inceptions. It's a critical organization, yet most of the people in the United States have never heard of it, even though its role is so important. I'd like, Chris, if you could first explain the difference to our listeners between basic science, translational science, and clinical science, and then let's talk about why NCATS was needed and what its mission is. Glad to. Thank you, Mike. And I just want to thank you for your vision over the years and your involvement has played a critical role in multiple stages of this evolution. So basic research, or sometimes called fundamental research, is looking at how living systems work, when they work well, and when they break. So how do proteins and genes and cells and organs normally function? When they go wrong, when disease happens, why? Why do they go wrong? And that's absolutely critical, for, of course, for diagnosis and as a basis on which to intervene. But, of course, that knowledge itself, as many parents have told me, it is not sufficient. I had a mom characterize this once beautifully by saying, you know, I love basic research and I love publications, but when my daughter gets sick, I can't give her a publication. And so the clinical side on the other side, 
side is, well, gosh, if you have an intervention, if you have a drug, a device, a behavioral intervention, a medical procedure, how does it work? Does it really work? Does it does it have the effectiveness and safety that you think in what patients in what circumstances? But in the middle is the critical translation step, which is developing the intervention in the first place, developing the drug or the device or the behavioral intervention or the medical procedure showing that it's uh, safe. And that aspect, that critical connector of translation, this process, this very complicated process of going from a, a gene all the way to an intervention in the community, that's about a 20 step process that has currently about a 0.1% success rate and can take two to three decades for this whole translational journey. So the critical thing about NCATS, and this gets as to why it was formed, is to begin a new science. And that is the science of translation, to understand the general scientific and operational principles by which this process happens. We will convert this from a mainly trial and error, mainly error, inefficient, ineffective process into a predictive science. That is what NCATS has brought to the field. Obviously, as you know, accelerating science saves millions of lives. Let's take an example, if you'd like, of any particular disease or treatment and walk us through what happened at the basic translational and then clinical phase. I could use COVID-19 as an example because COVID-19 illustrates all of the translational roadblocks that characterize virtually every disease. The basic science of COVID was worked out in lightning speed. And it's a great example of how the public's investment in NIH over the last 50, 60 years has paid off and other countries around the world. Because the understanding of the virus sequence, its cellular receptors, how it gets into cells, what it does to cells, what it does to organs, all that was worked out very, very quickly. But the problem then became, well, how does one intervene? If you have a diagnosis, what patients want is not just a diagnosis, they want a treatment. And so in our case, we very rapidly took those discoveries out of the basic lab and developed a series of about 20 different what are called assays, just a complicated word for a test, but it's something that allows us to test thousands or hundreds of thousands of potential drugs across every potential Achilles heel this virus or its cellular receptors have to prevent them from functioning. And we used not only very large compound chemical collections that we might be able to make new drugs out of, but of course, like your own organization, we focused on so-called repurposing, that is all the drugs that have been approved by regulatory agencies worldwide, and did an awful lot of screening for this, that is looking for novel therapies. It was important, particularly in this moment, to get that information shared as rapidly as possible. We've created an open science browser where all that information is on our website so everyone can use it, everyone can contribute to it. So that will give us additional potential treatments that can be tested in people. And then on the clinical side, at the same time, we very rapidly organized our trial innovation network to share 
information about how they were handling patients in real time and in their academic health centers, the research they were doing, connect people who wanted to do the same research to eliminate duplication and increase efficiency, novel designs, novel ways to get these studies done in a much more rapid, effective way, which is what the Trial Innovation Network focuses on. And then at the same time, we focused on more public health aspects where there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients going to hospitals all the time. But given our healthcare system and our electronic health record system, it's not always easy to figure out where those patients are, what their characteristics are, what drugs they might be on that might be helping them or hurting them. And so we very rapidly pivoted informatics, so-called data effort that we had been working on for about three years to tie all of these 60 centers around the country together. Cumulative, they take care of about 200 million people in this country. It's an absolutely unique national resource. Tie all those together in a common electronic health record system that will allow these centers to put all their data into a central place to be examined. And that's something called the National COVID-19 Cohort Collaborative, or N3C, just went live about two weeks ago that we're very excited about. So we're really covering the waterfront from right after the basic research lab, taking that football and running it down the field to identify new drugs, moving those into clinical trials as rapidly as possible, and then looking at real-world evidence in hospitals of how patients are actually being treated. If I had told you a generation ago that there was a virus and that the DNA of that virus would be posted for the whole world to see in a couple weeks. And then 63 days later, there would be a vaccine that went into a human being. So moving from basic to translational to clinical in nine weeks, you would have said, Mike, you know, that's absurd. You know, vaccines and most of the ones that we all got when we were kids, they're vaccines that are killed or inactivated in some way. And people try to use proteins for those as well and still do. But Moderna had this crazy idea that maybe you could use the translator protein, that's literally what's called the translator molecule, the messenger RNA, which as the vaccine, instead of the protein or the virus itself, and it's made perfect sense theoretically, but nobody thought it would work, but it appears to. And the reason this is so critical is that that, using the mRNA, which is derived directly from the sequence of the virus, as soon as you knew, as soon as we knew the sequence of that virus, we were able, and Moderna was able, to literally write, because you can make these molecules now in the lab, to actually make an mRNA molecule and that became the vaccine and just inject that. Now, how do we actually design a trial to demonstrate that it really does work? What do we have to measure the biomarkers? What do we have to measure to give the regulators confidence that if we're not going to wait for a protective response like you normally would in a vaccine, what is going to give FDA assuredness that they should approve this? How do you know who to give it to? Do you have to worry about immunocompromised people or not? And then big deal, how do you make enough of this stuff? We've never had to deal with trying to make a billion doses of a vaccine from ground zero. So this gets back to something that, Mike, I know you like talking about, is that the thinking about those the means of production, 
the manufacturing, those kinds of technologies are translational technologies too. And so we're able to do things much more rapidly in the earlier stages, the early stages. But I'm afraid that for the most part, the later stages are still as slow as they normally have been. It's one thing if you look at the well-meaning debate currently going on, the debate among vaccinologists and public health people is, well, gosh, this is a unique in this century public health challenge. So are we going to require the same level of evidence for a vaccine or a diagnostic for that matter, but for a vaccine before it is approved? And could we potentially begin to use it at the same time as we're still studying it? And normally we would never do that, but it's the kind of translational innovation that this COVID crisis is making not only possible, but needed. This particular vaccine, which is only one of more than 120 vaccines we are monitoring, Mm -hmm. and only one of 10 that we already know have gone into human beings, but it, it is a potential game changer. The idea that I give you something and then your immune system effectively creates that vaccine for you. The United States government under BARDA gave them a grant of $483 million to build manufacturing capacity and to make the vaccine prior to knowing if it works. As you have intimated, Chris, the stakes are so high that the cost of doing this why large at almost a half a billion pales in comparison to what the economic and human costs are. And so we're well aware of what's occurred with shutting down research laboratories or treating others with other life-threatening diseases. How is NCATS dealing with your work on so many other life-threatening diseases? why it's had to concentrate on COVID-19. Well, this is something that concerns us greatly. I have begun to become concerned that the number of people who die as a result of the kinds of delays or absences of taking care of other diseases may end up rivaling or even exceeding the deaths we have directly from COVID. Our focus on COVID is appropriate. We're all doing it. I'm doing it too. But it's easy to forget that there are 7,000 other diseases which are not waiting in their progression for for us to figure out COVID. Cancers are not going to go into remission, take a time out while we deal with COVID. ALS patients are not going to stop progressing because we're dealing with COVID. You know, that research has to a great degree stopped. Those clinical trials have to a great degree been suspended, at least in their recruitment of new patients. They're being seen if they're already in a trial on a bare bones level. It's very clear that the screening for cancer has gone down about 30% in the last couple of months. Now, we know cancer screening saves lives, so it stands to reason if that screening goes down, it will cost us lives. Same thing with things like heart attacks and strokes. The number of heart attacks and strokes showing up in the emergency room has gone down, depending on where you look, 40 to 50% sometimes apparently because people are afraid to go to the emergency room because they're afraid they're going to get COVID. But there is no reason to believe those heart attacks and strokes are not happening. They're just affecting people at home. And those people, if they die of an MI, 
they're not going to be listed as dying of COVID, but they really did. So we at the NIH, and I particularly am very concerned about this, or as my colleagues, where we've seen this the most is in rare diseases. And Mike, I know you know this. There are of the 7,000 or so diseases that affect the human family, 95% of which have no FDA treatment at all. And that's a number that just is emblazed into my brain. 95% of diseases which affect the human family have no FDA-approved treatment at all. Of those, about 90% are rare diseases, less than 200,000 in the country. And those are diseases that a lot of us have heard of, cystic fibrosis, Huntington's disease, sickle cell anemia, et cetera. But there are many, many others. And they tend to be rapidly progressive, disabling, cause of premature death, often in children. And we have heard a lot from that community saying we can't get in to see our doctors. We can't get the treatments we need. We can't get our child diagnosed because nobody will see us. And one of the urgencies that we feel, and one of the reasons we're all beginning to work so heavily on diagnostics, is we have got to open the research and medical system again to allow those patients who are getting sick and potentially dying out there to get into the system again. That kind of collateral damage, I think we're only going to really understand once a little bit more time passes. Now, I should say that for many diseases, a two-month delay is probably not the end of the world. But I can tell you, as someone who, who had a rare cancer, melanoma, a few years ago, that diagnosis, if I had not had that diagnosis when I did, my oncologist estimated, if I hadn't come in then, two weeks later, it would have been metastatic, given the pathology. You know, there is one other thing that I might say, if you don't mind, that we haven't gotten to, which is we talked about collateral damage, and that is very real. But I'm a big believer in collateral benefit. So what do I mean by that? Mike, you and I spend a lot of time trying to rally people to the need for faster cures. For many people, it's hard to get them to buy into that because they themselves or their family members are not acutely ill right then. Something that we see over and over and over and over again is that people who are disinterested in this translational problem, the week after they or their family member is diagnosed, they are all in. Why is the system so inefficient? Why is it so ineffective? It doesn't have to be this way. Let's change, innovate on the process. Let's do everything from making drugs or vaccines to clinical trials, to deployment in the community. That can all be innovated on to increase efficiency and effectiveness by 10 to 100 fold. I'm absolutely sure of that. But it's hard to get people who are not motivated because they themselves are not sick at that moment to realize that. But here we have a singular moment when Everyone realizes the need for faster cures and the limitations of the current system to deliver them. And so I would like to think that the message that faster cures has been promulgating for all these years, and you have personally, the tagline that NCATS uses, our equivalent is our job is to get more treatments to more people more quickly. It's another way of saying the same thing. But this is a teachable moment, and I'm so I'm hoping we won't go back to the old, and people will really stay on with this effort. The other thing that I'm seeing, which is very, very encouraging, is that Many of the behaviors that you and I have advocated for, for for years of teamwork, of data sharing, 
of connecting, of siloed experimentation to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff more quickly. We are seeing that on a scale I have never seen across NIH, across government agencies, with the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. And I like to think, and I hope this isn't just my inveterate optimism of speaking, but I like to think that all of those players will demonstrate to themselves how much more productive this is and how gratifying it is to be that productive and that that will serve as a return on investment for them, if you will, that will make them think twice before going back to the old siloed world, which you and I have been uh, trying to change for the last many years. Chris, I couldn't agree with you more. The level of cooperation, which we've been pushing for 50 years today, is at a level unseen. It's the large employers that are allowing testing in their parking lots or on their sites. It's the opening up for people to use things off patent without royalties. But there's something else that you said that's a way I have lived my own life over these decades. When I speak to a person that's been first diagnosed with a potential life-threatening disease, when you talk to them, as you know, Chris, it focuses your attention because nothing else matters at that point. I have made it my duty in many ways to make sure I talk to 10 people a week who either have been diagnosed for the first time with a life-threatening disease or have had a reoccurrence. And when you do that, you are focusing at a very raw point in emotions. And it's not that I was diagnosed, you know, a year ago and I've been on treatment, but right then and there, it makes you focus on what should you do today and what you should do tomorrow. And Chris, I do hope, as you've stated, that this has been so devastating, not just medically, but to people's way of life, that we will not go back. And it will be one of the lessons learned from this experience. Chris, I want to thank you for joining us today and for your commitment to science. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been wonderful being with you, and I look forward to continuing on this journey we're on together. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.